0: Alright, it's been some time, so forgive me if I'm... uh, I don't have the muscle memory that Matt Thomas does, uh, assuming all things are going well. but save
1: clips like that for the pod.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I'll see what I can do. You know what I want.
1: (laughs) I want to talk, Sam.
0: Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I am Rose Sampson Folk, joining you after a long hiatus. It's been, I don't know, three months and some change. I hope you don't mind too much, but we're back in the swing of things. Joining me today is a dear, dear friend, an aloof mentor in some ways, and a guy with the good kind of worm brains instead of the bad. It's Blake Murphy, Raptors writer extraordinaire for The Athletic. Blake, how are you doing today, man?
1: Good, man. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. We talked a bit before this, and uh, you told me to save quips that were good for the podcast, and I'm going to retread it. My podcasting, just for you, listener, might not be as good, the muscle memory, that is, as uh, Matt Thomas's shooting stroke. But I'm going to ask you something right away, Blake, and it's it's my first question. If you got to choose a statement for the back of your jersey, what would it be, and why would it be one of the two, education reform? Or group economics?
1: Oh, it's got to be group economics. Come on. It's uh, when you can be that vague and, you know, kind of miss the point of the moment by that that degree. Um, you know, not that something like that, not that a thought like that isn't important. But, uh, yeah, I am, uh, I certainly don't love that the NBA was like, here are your corporate approved slogans. Um, you know, I, I feel like group economics was just for Spencer Dinwiddie, and now he's not even playing, so... <laughs> That has been a tough... I've been a big
0: Spencer fan for years, and most of his commentary was actually, I guess, pretty limited, although it, it, there was more of it than you get from most NBA players, and I had generally enjoyed his commentary on most things. During the, the quarantine, during this outbreak, he's kind of delved farther into some spaces, and it's left me like, oh, Spence, really, man? But, it, you know, it's his prerogative. He does his thing, but the $26 trillion thing... Um, both because he won't be there because of yeah. his testing positive for COVID-19 and because, well, I, they have the pre-approved messages. Do you think they could have avoided any type of backlash if just one of them had been defund the police? Among, I'll, I'll read the list right now for the listeners. So the confirmed the NBA, the NBPA and the NBA came together and decided on Black Lives Matter. I can't breathe. Vote, justice, stand up. Listen, listen to us, say their names, peace, how many more, education reform, liberation, equality, freedom, enough, si se puede, say her name, mentor, I am a man, another funny one, speak up, ally, anti-racist, justice now, power to the people, see us hear us, respect us, love us, and the cherry topper group economics. But I'll, I'll rephrase it once again for you, Blake. Do you think they could have avoided a lot of the backlash they've gotten if they had just put defund the police among those?
1: Yeah, I think so. And look, I don't want to be dismissive of of those messages, which are all good messages, even even one like education reform, which doesn't seem as important to the moment. You know, here in Ontario, Um, The government just passed that, you know, in grade nine, you won't be streamed. Um, The education streaming, which has been shown to be very discriminatory, uh, is going to be moved away from. So those are important steps to kind of trying to rethink some of these systemic issues. Um, It's just it's more that those examples, when highlighted, contrasted to like what could be said or what players may have wanted the message uh, to say is a little weird. And, yeah, I think. I think the lack of mention of police, whether it's defund the police or police brutality, um, you know, that's that's a problem because that's what sparked this moment and that's one of the biggest issues, um, not just in the United States but in, in Canada as well. Um, my larger issue than just the lack of defund the police or police brutality, which again, I think, if there was at least something about law enforcement, um, the league probably would have been laughed at a little less for this. And again. Not that the initiative isn't good in general, but it feels like a half measure and it feels like something, you know, the NBA has not had the best couple of months in terms of uh, defending its fake championship as, oh, we're more, you know, we're more woke, like to use a dick finger quote term, we're more woke than the other leagues. Uh, They have not had a good couple of months with that. Um, especially, you know, as we return to play here uh, amid rising numbers and everything. Uh, but the, the bigger issue for me is that I had talked to multiple players, and we had talked to multiple players on conference calls as well, who were putting a ton of thought and research into this, and talking to mentors in their lives, or doing research, and and. You know, no one told me this specifically, but I would imagine some of the players wanted to localize it for their communities. You know, DeMar DeRozan has always been incredibly outspoken about Compton. Uh, Fred Van Vliet's been very outspoken about these issues in Rockford. And and I think that giving players a list takes, you know, uh, sure, it might be overwhelming if, what is it, 22 times 15, if, if 330 different players have 330 different messages it it's a little harder to get a cohesive message out um, but I think it removes an opportunity for the messages to be localized whether that's in a player's community or if you're one of the Canadians in the NBA or if you're the Raptors um, if you wanted to localize that to a more Canadian message and I think it takes away the chance to personalize that so um, you know this isn't the only thing the NBA is going to be doing so I want to I don't want to, you know, over criticize if more is to come and we've seen from the WNBA side that they're they've been a little more active and a lot more firm in what their messaging is going to be, but they also haven't been given any money or even a schedule here like 10 days out from when they're starting, so it's not perfect on that side either. Anyway, all that is to say there's still a lot that we're going to find out, but this is not the best first step in my mind at least optically in terms of oh yeah we're going to let players use this as a platform to affect change but the change that they want to affect and those messages are going to have to be you know approved by the nba and mbpa and can't you know right out of the gate oh yeah we're not going to let you mention police brutality and the anti-black racism that that's um, present in not just uh, law enforcement but in the entire penal system Uh, You know, to come out of the gate with that right away is a, a troubling first step, I think.
0: Yeah. And mixing that with there is a I think a very complicated conversation to be had, not one that I think I'm capable of having at a level that's worth listening to, but a complicated conversation regarding coercion and the players agency to even participate in this Disney restart. It's It's definitely a complicated situation. And then to seemingly take away even more agency from the players um, with this. Uh, Lou Dort is another example of somebody who wanted to personalize it. And seeing that, definitely like you said, it's obviously that's probably not the last thing they'll do. There are lots of plans, I'm sure that they have that are yet to be set in motion. But also like the WNBA, a lot of stuff happening there, but also a schedule not even coming out. It's, there are a lot of moving parts, but what we've seen so far has been, I think, there's a lot of voices backing it and saying it's really it's a good idea. They're doing a lot of work to make this safe. But then a lot of reports of these teams closing down facilities, um, players testing positive, which whether or not that's before this or during this, it's created a lot of moving parts. And it's. I understand it's not an easy job for the NBA right now, but the point you made about the NBA, I guess, propping itself up as the league that is the most forward-thinking consistently. And that, that's and a, a better and way of
1: saying it than dick-finger quotes woke.
0: Yeah, propping so itself up. Yeah, propping itself up as the most forward-thinking. And I think... Very effective at providing platitudes to the masses over the past five, six years, while the fringes of people who are really paying attention, who might want a little bit more work done from the NBA, never really appealing to that crowd. And obviously, there is a crowd on the opposite side of things that thinks um, that propping yourself up to look woke is horrible and there are sex on the right side of politics and the left side of politics that find that that way but i did want to touch on this because i haven't done a podcast during all this and i thought that this would be something to at least kick us off but i'll move us into basketball and kind of a quick fire section here but i'm really curious because teams at least when you see players working out and in scrimmages they can kind of light it up and at a level or at a pace that you don't really see in NBA games, it's a completely different environment. I have I have some quick questions, and it's do you think isolation proficient players will see a boost after the time off and maybe against some clunky team play on both ends? So an isolation scorer now maybe more readily equipped to kill a team that's kind of clunky on with their team defense. And maybe better to, I guess, um, boost an offense that is a little bit clunky because of the team play as well.
1: I would say um, only in one specific example, the league's one hundredth percentile isolation score, Terrence Davis the <laughs> second.
0: Um, I no, thought in, wasn't it ninety nine point six.
1: Something like it, it rounds so synergy actually it rounds only, up yes yeah synergy <laughs> only rounds to um, a full digit so or a whole number rather so. Um, yeah, I guess it's 99. There, there's one person out there scoring a little more efficiently than than Terrence Davis in isolation. Uh, also, that's on, like, I think, 16 possessions or something like that. Uh, but no, in seriousness, I, I actually I don't really know. And, and, you know, part of that is just the situation. So novel. Part of it is that, uh, you know, as you hear guys talk about these and I'll use a Norman Powell quote glorified pickup games, you know, if that's the the situation, then I could see not only more one on one play, but a lot more transition play., um, the counter to that is that transition play, generally goes down in the postseason and we're only talking about eight ramp up games here so um you know if you're if you're talking about what uh what a defense and what an offense looks like in a typical playoffs you would expect a little bit more one-on-one play a little bit less transition play um you know and, and that one-on-one play is not only just because the defense might lag behind an offense but it's because um you know that's that's how playoff basketball works sometimes where things get grinded down to a bit slower of a pace and, and it's more of a matchup seeking and advantage seeking style of offense. So um, I could definitely see that. I don't know. You know, I think it's going to vary by team. I think if you're a team like the Raptors, something they're going to try to hang their hat on and something they're really hoping gives them an edge out of the gate is that they do have this defensive chemistry and and kind of collective IQ. And and they'll hope that that comes back quickly. Uh, But what I will say is whatever these effects are, I think by the time we get to like the second round of the playoffs, Um, that's probably enough time and enough getting rid of the the bottom feeder teams out of this format that, um, you know, I think it's probably going to start to resemble more and more like regular playoff basketball. And obviously it won't have the crowd and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, if the Raptors have an advantage at the team defense level because of their chemistry and continuity, or if a team like the Rockets has an advantage because they just have so much one-on-one capability with James Harden and Russell Westbrook, I think by the time you're three scrimmages, eight reseeding games, and five to seven first-round playoff games in, um, and you're down to the eight best teams, then I think those, those advantages will probably have eroded by the time we get to these kind of coin flip series anyway. So um, whether you're excited or pessimistic about those things, uh, I don't think, you know, if you're looking strictly through a Raptors lens, they're almost surely going to get to the second round of the playoffs anyway. Um, so any positivity would be worn out by then or any pessimism would be worn out by then as well. Cause I think we'll be closer to back to normal.
0: The very famous well, infamous now gif of Terrence Davis saying he can't guard me. That was an isolation <laughs> against Chris Middleton. Was that not?
1: I believe Who? so. It was definitely against Chris Middleton. I can't remember if it was an isolation or just, you know, one of those uh, kind of improvised attacks, but if it's the play that I'm thinking and it's on the right wing of the floor and he kind of get, he has a bit of a running start and goes at him, um, then yes it's cl- at yeah, least synergy
0: i, I don't think yeah. it was a uh, i don't think it was a closeout or anything i think he had dribbles and he put the ball down and okay and then he mean mugging in the camera <laughs> chris Middleton <laughs> in the background what a guy um the next question because i'm firmly of the belief that free throw percentages should probably skyrocket i think you hear all the you know you hear talks many four or five years ago the houston rockets are saying dwight howard shoots 90 percent on free throws in practice and you just apply that idea to to these games and the the depth perception perhaps of nobody behind the basket our shooting percentage is going to go up and if not at least the free throw line will probably see a, a boost in percentage right
1: i mean it's possible i don't know that the crowd effect is that much or the extra practice or anything like that. Like if we look at the recent history of the NBA, um, the league wide free throw percentage has been between 74.5% and 77.2% for like since 1999. So there's just not a lot of fluctuation in that stat. and, And it's, it certainly seems like that's a skill that like, as a, basketball playing population or as a talent pool has kind of topped out at low 77 high 76. Um, Maybe it gets the uptick a little bit because of no away crowds or whatever. And and that slight difference in home road uh, free throw percentage. But I also, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that there's going to be a bit like if the league comes out and shoots 80% on free throws, I'll be pretty surprised.
0: Yeah, I suppose the Timberwolves have the worst um, attendance in the league, it looks like at, the average is 15,066. So I don't have it on me, but it'd be interesting to see what percentage um, teams shoot in that arena. Although that's 15,000 is a lot more than, I guess, Zach Lowe and Howard Beck sitting behind the basket or something like that.
1: Hey, Although have- I, I just looked it up and the Timberwolves do have the fifth highest uh, opponent free throw percentage uh, allowed. The the Thunder have been the least fortunate and that's uh, probably not the, although with how good they were this year, maybe that crowd was popping more often. But
0: anyway, 14th, 14th, uh, the Thunder average, uh, 18,203. The Thunder were such a fun team this year, man. They, oh, Gallo, CP3, Shea Gilgis, Alexander. It's very. What do you
1: mean were they? They could be a sneaky. Sorry, sorry, uh, I don't know. I'm. Annoying team in the relaunch.
0: I'm not in NBA mode yet. Okay, I'm not speaking past tense because I think they're. I think, hey man, Chris Paul, Gallo, Shea Gilgis, Alexander. You know, they got an outside shot at the the finals. Why not? You know, it's. I'm I'm of the mind. I've said this many times that if Philly had gotten Gallinari instead of Tobias last Tobias Harris last year, I think they would have won the NBA championship. I'm very high on Gallo, and I think OKC is. Um, very fun. But, yeah, that is now, interesting. How much, about... how
1: much of that is you high on Gallo, and how much of it is just not being a big Tobias Harris fan?
0: I Harris is good. Harris is good. I, but Gallo, I think, is is better, and I think fit that team better. Yeah, um, I mean, if Gallo, I have...
1: Gallo's shooting, and I know Tobias Harris had a, a really good year shooting the ball last year um, in 2018, 2019, that is. Um, but, yeah, Gallo's shooting ability, I, I guess... The thing Above is, the
0: break shooting ability is important. Yeah,
1: too. if he could stay healthy, I feel like he would have been one of the league's biggest trade targets. The He was one of my favorite Raptors trade targets for this season, and then Oklahoma City went ahead and was good.
0: Yeah, OKC has been one of the best stories. Them, the Grizzlies, Raptors, all very fun. But I, I do think, Tobias Harris, I think, was ranked 41st, maybe, or 42nd on my top 100 list. Gallo was... 33rd or 34th I believe so they're not that far apart to me I just think Gallo with his ability if he's healthy to hit above the break would have been really tough for the Raptors to defend and also Tobias Harris had admittedly not such a great series or playoffs but t- Tobias is good I remember Lewis was giving me crap saying you're not gonna put Tobias high enough and I was like he'll be fine he'll, he'll make top 50 and all that so and Chris Dunn made it to number 100 And that was before I even knew you liked him. So I thought, Hey, that's great. Chris Dunn. I'll get Blake to write up. I think that would be very fun. Yeah. But let's, let's get into a piece you wrote. talking about relaunching the season, the half court offense. And it was a great piece, but as you laid out in that, it has been apparent to most who watch the Raptors closely. They've been extremely good, but also extremely reliant on transition basketball. And The team has been hampered with injuries this year, and it's tough to gauge exactly how potent they'll be at their best. But their struggles in the half court shouldn't be too surprising given the roster and given what it looked like last year, Sands, Kawhi, and the playoffs. With Gasol's return and hopefully more possessions with Siakam using screens or setting them, are the Raptors a sleeping giant when it comes to pick and roll or handoff plays? Because I know that's not something they were very good at this year.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say Sleeping Giant necessarily. I think... Gasol missing so much time obviously hurts their offense and and Serge Ibaka had probably the best offensive season of his career but Ibaka's best cast as you know a moderate usage play finisher which is really really valuable for those hybrid bench units that the Raptors use but Marc Gasol has kind of a multiplier skill set with you know even though him and Ibaka have very very similar three-year three-point percentages and and volumes I think teams respect Gasol just a little bit more uh, on the pick and pop and, and you know vertically spacing the floor and then Gasol's passing ability is just it just opens up so much in terms of off ball movement in terms of pick and roll dynamism in terms of especially the dribble handoff game so um, I think that helps a lot you know Gasol had the highest offensive rating on the or the the highest um, net rating on the roster uh, of any main rotation guy so um, I think that stands out I think the fact that him and Siakam kind of um, had the biggest impact on the team's half court offense uh, when you if you look at cleaning the glass and the the on off numbers at the um, at the half court offense level, um, Gasol and Siakam are the guys who had the biggest impact there. So uh, and, and then Gasol also you know when only one of Lowry or Van Vliet are on the floor, you know, Gasol lets those guys get off the ball a little bit more, which helps with spacing and three point shooting. So um, I definitely think that helps in terms of sleeping giant. I, I don't know that it's that extreme. I don't know that. You know, if you're an average to slightly below average half-court offense over 64 games, that your top gear is, you know, suddenly top five half-court offense. Uh, But I think there are certain certainly indicators beyond just the time missed uh, that they can be a little better. Part of that is, you know, as you shrink the rotation, a guy like Patrick McCaw, Chris Boucher, or Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is suddenly playing fewer minutes. And those are guys who, um, in a playoff environment, opponents will probably do their best to, uh, ignore and dare to beat them um, beyond that you know you can look at things like yeah Pascal Siakam didn't run a lot of pick and rolls as a ball handler uh, and late in games at least those were very effective and and I think you know Gasol, uh, Siakam's effectiveness scoring on those plays for the entire season was not super high um, but you look at some of those late game scenarios and more qualitatively what a Siakam Lowry or Siakam Van Vliet pick and roll causes a defense to have to decide between. And then at the other end of the spectrum, even a Siakam big pick and rolls, particularly a Siakam Gasol one, uh, you know, if, if Siakam can run a lot of pick and roll and you trust him in that and he could score effectively, that's a good, a really good counter to what a lot of teams are going to want to do against him defensively. And he already added the threat of that pull up above the break three this year, um, which kind of counters what we saw last year in the playoffs where, an Embiid or a Draymond or whoever can kind of sag off of him and, you know, force him to drive into bodies. Um, the pick and roll game will kind of keep teams from, or not keep teams from, cause you know, Miami's still going to put Bam on him and try their best to keep that matchup. Uh, but if you can suddenly get Bam switched off and Siakam's picking on someone else, you know, that's helpful. So uh, I think there are some indicators like that. I think it's also You know, the Raptors had one of the worst dead ball offenses in the entire league, but they were top 10 in terms of scoring out of timeouts. So that's another between that and them having the number two uh, clutch offensive rating in in an admittedly small sample. uh, You know, those are the kind of things that you look at. It's like, okay, maybe Nick Nurse was holding something back until, you know, the highest leverage moments. And maybe he was letting Siakam kind of take some lumps to learn on the fly. Um, so I think there are there are a few small indicators like that that Raptors fans can be pretty optimistic about. I just don't think suddenly they're going to come out and, you know, be a, a top three, top four half court offense. I think this is still a team that's going to need to thrive off of um, tra- the transition game and forcing turnovers on the defensive end to fuel the offense. And it's still a team that might get bogged down in the half court and have some of these, um, you know, late, posset- late clock possessions that uh, they haven't been particularly effective at.
0: It fits that the sleeping giant comment was a sticking point because when I wrote it, I was like, well, they're not a sleeping giant, but I can't think of a substitute for that term. So the fact that you're like, ah, sleeping giant, I'm not so sure. I was like, damn it, I knew this was going to happen. But to bring up the the Gasol-Siakam two-man game, last year was really effective in setting him loose from generational defender Jonathan Isaac, and that's last year's version of siakam as well so i'm glad you brought that up it's putting siakam on the move i think will be a big benefit to what the Raptors is doing this year and uh, as you know as a lot of people know siakam was top five in usage in iso this year you're taking a guy who's a power forward nominally and a guy who is not known for his handle is not known for event creation really before this year he's a stud in transition he's a super rangy defender and pretty good in iso last year as well not so much this year but Taking that guy, and Nick Nurse says, Hey, you're a top five ISO usage player this year, and make it work. And the fact that his numbers, as far as scoring, are similar to a LeBron James is a huge step for him. But obviously, as we can see, that's not his best play type. And the Raptors weren't creating as many advantages per game for Pascal Siakam, their, let's say, go to guy as they could have been this year so to think that maybe they'll put more effort into game planning and um, creating more more events for not events more plays for him to work out of I think that that makes a lot of sense and I think that points to something where the Raptors could improve as you said Gasol having the highest net rating he's a huge boon for the Raptors on defense even even their half-court offense and a lot of other things but you brought up the, the back end of the rotation, the Chris Boucher of it all, 15 extra pounds of muscle. He's huge now, Patrick McCaw. And some teams make their biggest jump in the playoffs by making rotation decisions, a lot of the time cutting it down to nine or eight men. Terrence Davis looms large at the back end because much to the screen of a large portion of the fan base, he was looked over in favor of Patrick McCaw quite often and despite having a significantly superior offensive season, I think a lot of people would say. There are some horned sets that the Raptors like McCaw holding the ball up top for, and Nick Nurse seems to have a firm belief in McCaw's defensive pedigree. With the Raptors profiling as one of the deepest teams in the league, which typically would mean they have the least to gain from shorter rotations, not all the time, not in the micro, but in the macro sense, that's generally true. There's no doubt that Davis-McCaw minutes will... Receive a lot of attention from fans and media, but do you think that could actually be a meaningful change in the postseason?
1: Yeah, I think I think so. And your point about depth you know, mattering a little less in the postseason is one that the pre Kawhi era Raptors experienced a lot. You know, they 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 ran a bench mob. They ran a full five man bench unit. And yeah, that that got kind of undercut by Fred Van Bleet's injury, not by the nature of the playoffs. Uh, But you go back and look and it's, you know, as other teams shrink their rotation, it's really hard to play five bench guys. So um, with the Raptors, you know, Nick Nurse showed last year he's not afraid to go down to seven, sometimes basically six and a half guys in a rotation. I think you know, one thing the Raptors will have going for them is they know who their top seven are. They know how those guys fit together and the different iterations that work there. Um, But yeah, especially early on, you're going to want to be deeper than seven. You're probably going to want an eighth guy you trust, um, at least series to series in terms of matchup. You know, we saw we saw from the other side what it looked like when Philadelphia only had six guys that they trusted. And the seventh and eighth man every night was just kind of a carousel. And, you know, hey, James Ennis, if you hit your shots, you get another game. If you don't, you're back to the bench. And, hey, Amir, I'm sorry, but we need to drag you out there for eight minutes at a time. Because Boban Boban was tough, too. Yeah. Yeah, Boban. So, you know, you see what that's like. Now, the Raptors' depth is a lot better than, you know, 35-year-old Amir Johnson and Boban and um, things like that. So, But those questions are still important. Um, I, I think... In a relaunch where these guys have had four months off and where Nick Nurse has basically come out and said he's going to want to try to keep all 17 guys as ready as possible, I think you're probably going to see a deeper rotation initially. Uh, That's especially true over the three scrimmages and eight reseeding games. But if the Raptors lock up the two seed, uh, they'll be an enormous favorite against likely Orlando, but also slight possibility of Brooklyn Um, in the first round, you know, I could see him running nine or 10 just to keep more guys in the mix. Then, um, zooming ahead to the tougher playoff series, I think you have your top seven and then you're probably looking at one of Davis or McCaw and one of Hollis, Jefferson or Boucher. And you probably only have enough room for one of each of those pairs. If that's even, you know, if you even go that deep, Um, Matt Thomas probably sneaks into a Jody Meeks type role, end of quarter two for one situations to spark the offense uh, but I don't think they'll trust him yet in big minutes to um, you know be capable enough that teams won't attack him defensively so uh, yeah the the Hollis Jefferson Boucher thing is probably more um, matchup based than overall quality based I, I would think that Hollis Jefferson gets more of a first crack because he's been relied on a bit more and you know was by uh, Christian Arsu's metric at B-Ball Index, the most versatile defender in the league this year positionally. Um, I think that's valuable in a lot of different opponent types and a lot of different setups, whereas Chris Boucher is more of kind of a a chaos engine, like, hey, this game's getting away from us. Let's throw Boucher in and see if the momentum can change. But McCaw Davis is the big one. It's the one people focus on. You know, I've joked before that I'm the only Patrick McCaw centrist uh, because I do see a little bit of what Nurse likes in him in terms of, You know, he fights through screens, he recovers off of screens well, Um, he uses his length to get in gaps really well, he's kind of an event creator on the defensive end, and then he has good speed in transition to not necessarily score himself, but kind of put that pressure on a a transition defense and help other guys get theirs. Now, having said that, McCaw's exactly the type of half-court offensive player that a team like the Raptors that struggles not only to get early shots in the half-court, but to get quality shots in general— you know, he's going to gum that up. And yeah, you can put the ball in his hands for some horns plays and get uh, Van Vliet and Lowry off the ball a little bit more. We saw in his 11 assist game, how that looks. Uh, But I think, you know, if you were to line up the Raptors weaknesses and what other teams might try to take advantage of, I think defensive rebounding is probably the first one. And then the second one is how things look in the half court. And if you have McCaw on the floor, that's a guy other teams are going to dare to beat them. We saw what the Raptors treated Eric Bledsoe like, and Bledsoe's a more willing and higher percentage three-point shooter and a more aggressive attacker than McCaw is, um, and probably a more natural uh, playmaker as well. So um, you see how that can work with a a slightly better version of that, not slightly better, but a better offensive version of that archetype, and it's really problematic, whereas you look at Terrence Davis, And yeah, you probably give up a little bit, at least in terms of consistency on the defensive end. You know, like most rookies, he's susceptible to getting back cuts sometimes, and he's not always uh, particularly locked into the team concept. And, and, you know, part of that is maybe that he played so many minutes in that trio with uh, Boucher and Hollis Jefferson, where the whole identity was kind of to create chaos. Um, But he's, you know, he's not as stout possession to possession. But offensively, not only is he a 40 percent three point shooter and a very willing shooter, he's one of the only guys on the roster that can, you know, you use the term event creation earlier. And I know it's um, it's uh, one that Robel, Robel, who who's with us now as draft coverage, um, Robel Tussin is what I was going to say, because I keep people's ass in my I I think of everyone as their as their Twitter handle, Um, you know, event creation is a term he likes to use to, to talk about Terrence Davis. Uh, and it's a good one. You know that, that's not only breaking a guy down in ISO. Um, it's also Davis has a little bit of pick and roll chops where right now the the points per possession don't look fondly on him. But if you go into the tape, he does create advantages well out of those situations. Um, and mostly just, it's the pressure he puts on the rim and, you know, so many defenses want to keep you, obviously defenses want to keep you off the three point line, but for a lot of the league's best defenses, particularly Milwaukee, um, the focus is on keeping you away from the rim and out of the paint. And the Raptors don't have a lot of guys who naturally pressure the rim. Pascal Siakam does a pretty good job of it. Norman Powell's a, a high percentile um, by volume and by finishing at the rim this year, which is great, even with his, you know, that's huge, even with his kind of limited passing out of those situations. Uh, we've seen this year how important the 16 points a game he gets are, not just by shooting, but by getting to the rim and, and causing a defense to, to kind of bend that way. And Davis is kind of the the next best after those two guys at getting there and using the drive um, to kind of collapse a defense. And I, I think when you get to a playoff series, That's a really useful skill because it's the exact thing that, you know, if you the best examples are if you look at what the Raptors do to opposing teams Well, they dare the worst offensive player on the floor to beat them. And and if you can have an eight man rotation where, you know, in, in that case, maybe OG Ananobi is the worst natural creator. In the or I guess Ibaka really, but Ibaka will take so many mid-range jumpers that you still have to be accounted. He still has to be accounted for. Um, You know, if you get to a scenario where Ananobi at 38% from the from the three-point line and with a slightly improved ability to to get to the rim and create for himself, you know, if that's your worst offensive player on the floor, you're in pretty good shape. Um, So you know that that's Nick Nurse and Adrian Griffin in, in conference calls the last week or two have been pretty open that you know in the regular season they were. Cool with playing, letting Davis play through some mistakes, whether that's turnovers or or defensive, um, as long as they were within the team concept. But it's pretty clear that he's going to have to, despite the offensive advantages he provides, you know, it's the it's the defensive floor that's probably going to determine just how much rope um, Nick Nurse will give him. So uh, I'm sorry that this is such a long answer, Samson. Uh, I apologize for that. But it's it's a question that I've spent the whole year kind of trying to answer for people and I think is going to be the primary rotation question heading into the playoffs. So um, while I apologize for talking for so long, I don't apologize for my passion about the Terrence Davis, Patrick McCaw situation.
0: God forbid somebody speak on a podcast. but I just to I need to say this, keeping a list of everybody's at in your head is an example of maybe good worm brains, I think that's <laughs> <laughs> that's what that is. Um, to echo your sentiments, Ronda Hollis Jefferson, yes, super impressive defender. I, I can't remember what that um, who the measurement was from, but as far as points allowed per isolation possession, point 0.53, 97th percentile was always very switchable, was really impressive this year. OG Ananobi, you brought up his, let's say, event creation to um, talk about Robel's um, term again. Um, Not sure what the nomenclature is for that, but yes, he was the first guy I saw use it. Um, OG Ananobi, probably to become better, I think the the thing that OG needs to do is attack closeouts better than have um, a couple counters once getting past that. He's kind of sloppy attacking from the weak side. We've seen Norm Powell... Significantly enhance his, um, let's say, value and proficiency in those plays by working in different things, coming attacking off the weak side. And yeah, Patrick McCaw's defensive floor, I think, significantly higher than Terrence Davis's uh, defensive floor as well. As as you said, agents of chaos, Chris Boucher mm-hmm. and Terrence Davis. But I wonder, and after I say this, I'll move us along. But I wonder in in a playoff series, this may not be true. But it seems true. Statistically, I'm not sure if this would bear out, but narrative wise, you feel like the guys who are willing to take the shots are the ones who actually make the difference. And it's rare that you feel like a role player is shooting a team out of a game, which is why I think a lot of people think that Terrence Davis is the ideal player going forward because... Rarely do you feel like, ah, Terrence Davis took those six three pointers and it just, that's why we lost the game because he made zero or one of them. Rarely does that come up as, okay, that's where we lost the game. Whereas Patrick McCaw, there's a stagnation he might add to the offense, but he he may not just throw away a possession with a, a shot like that. So. And I'm sure you know what I mean, that role players making shots. You brought up James Ennis, the one, the, I guess, Philadelphia 76ers alumni, and I guess uh, kind of in the same group of who who are other rappers killers? You've written about them extensively. Oh, Shirley, G- you-
1: Gerald Henderson is, of course, Gerald Henderson. King. Yes. Uh, shout out to William Liu um that's a big one I, I guess it's not really the same oh actually it is because it, it kind of came up like Ursan Ilyasova basically became unplayable in, in the Eastern Conference Finals because the shots weren't dropping for him and um you know the the tr- trade-off at the other end just wasn't there so um yeah I mean Raptors fans know this stuff well right it's it's uh it's hard to isn't James Dennis back on the 76ers by the way
0: uh, a game of who he played for. I'm not sure where James Ennis <laughs> is right now. but I thought he got
1: uh, traded
0: back. James oh, Ennis no, the III. other way
1: around. They traded him away. My bad.
0: He's on yeah. Orlando.
1: Yeah, they traded him Another away. Another
0: prime matchup with James Ennis, looming large for the Raptors this year. My poor
1: Man. brain. Unloaded for a second-round pick for the, this treatment of – yeah, a- anyway – um You know, the other example that I think stands out of this, and again, we'll use the Raptors defense to highlight it because it's a little easier to see is, you know, you go back to that Houston game where they hard double James Harden all game. And you actually, you know, that game felt like the Raptors were just under a barrage of threes from role players. um, And it was frustrating because of that. But also you look at the per isolation or the, the per double team numbers and the Raptors actually came out okay because, you know, James Harden's really good and if you get the ball out of his hands, uh that's helpful and I think, you know, the Raptors don't have to use another um term that I I want to say this is a Seth Part now, but like the Raptors don't Siakam is not as heliocentric an offensive piece as a James Harden, so you can't, you know, as a defense loading up on Siakam maybe doesn't come at quite the cost of the team's offense overall. Um but you know, the teams are going to try especially if Siakam's playing well, teams are going to try to get the ball out of his hands. So Um, Yeah, those spots are, you know, Eric Gordon is probably the best example of it over the last couple of years with the Rockets because he's this very good and very willing three point shooter that teams have no choice but to kind of uh, kind of sag off of and dare to shoot. I I shouldn't say very good. He hasn't shot crazy good um, as a Houston Rocket, but he was an elite three point shooter with New Orleans. Anyway, the point is Eric Gordon, even on only slightly above average three point shooting uh, at 93's a game is kind of the the standard bearer and the best example of a player like this and the uh, the kind of trade-offs defenses are going to accept. The fact that he has also had one of the highest variance three-point season three-point shooting seasons I've ever seen this year is uh also plays into that where he basically has oscillated from shooting 10% to 90% like month to month. Actually, anyway.
0: that's an interesting one. I know Terrence Davis there's been talk about um him working on his pick-and-roll game. And yes, heliocentric, I've seen that term used quite a bit lately, although I don't know the origin either. Um, Terrence Davis, probably, Eric Gordon, the things Eric Gordon has been really good at in his career, the pressure on the rim, especially attacking closeouts, and the just loading up from three all the time, do probably represent some of Terrence Davis's ceiling. Although, hoping his... You know, if if he makes as much money as Eric Gordon did in his career, that's great. I mean, good for Terrence Davis. But may um, I may I
1: shamelessly plug something?
0: Yes, you're gonna write about him, aren't you?
1: It's already written. It's already edited. It's going up Thursday. I have a Terrence Davis kind of a. It's mostly a breakdown of his offense on the season, but with a particular focus on that pick and roll play because he did talk about it, and I do think it's such a big, um, you know, a big next step for him. Not only for him as an individual, but yeah, like. I think that those skills are fairly closely related to attacking closeouts and putting pressure on the rim. So, um yeah, look for that Thursday at the athletic yeah i saw
0: I saw the little the little insert um, in your piece talking about the the court offense. But uh, maybe one last thing before we get into Twitter questions, um, it's just kind of a silly question. but I know I know you enjoy Jimmy Butler, and uh, I, I have to ask, have you ever done anything? comparable to Jimmy Butler's reportedly 3.30 a.m. workout when the heat practice started at 10. Is, is there a comparable situation in your life ever for something like that?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so <laughs> on uh, July 1st, or I guess the night of June 30th every year, I just don't sleep. Like that's that's penciled in as an all-nighter night for me because free agency is going to start and you got to be, you know, you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. You don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. when the Kawhi trade comes down. Um, you know, you're already you're already in that mode. Uh, the Kawhi trade did wake me up because it was much later in July. But in general, like, ironic. <laughs> I will stay up June 30th to July 1st uh, all night. I remember the DeRozan contract new deal came down at like two in the morning or something like that, and all over it, no sleep on that night.
0: And so, what drives you to do that? Is it is it the professionalism that just says, yeah, okay. Not everybody does it that way, you know. Some people go to sleep.
1: Sleep's you know what I mean? I'm not a big sleeper. <laughs> anyway, like, like seriously, I'm not a big sleeper in general, so...
0: You and I are diametrically opposed on the sleep, I gotta say. I love yeah. sleep. Big fan.
1: Not a fan. I don't like it.
0: Yeah, what a waste, right? Could be, could be delving through some spreadsheets. Could be looking at, hmm, how will Chris Dunn fit into the 2022 cap sheet? All those types of things. And if you're sleeping, you're going to lose all that momentum. But, Blake, I think... Uh, we're ready to get into the Twitter questions. How's that sound?
1: That sounds great, man.
0: All right, listener, get ready to hear an ad. Get Goldfinger
1: today. Here's the scenario. You're injured in a collision and your insurance company is denying your claim. It happens far too often. If it happens to you, call me, Brian Goldfinger of Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. My team and I work for people just like you. We don't accept cases on behalf of insurance companies, so you and your family can make sure that you're in good hands. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. Get Goldfinger
0: today. And welcome back. Still Samson Folk hosting the Raptors Republic podcast, which I know the way I framed that uh, bugged Blake the last time I said it. But mm. Blake is here once again. And uh, we're ready to dive into some Twitter questions. The first from a colleague of mine and uh, a former, I guess, or maybe a mentee of yours in some ways, Joshua Howe. His question. Two, actually. First, obviously, you have a comma succeed the however, but what precedes it? Another comma, a semicolon. Second, if you had to choose a single raptor to carry the one ring to Mount Doom, who would it be in parentheses? I really just want to parse Blake's Lord of the Rings knowledge. So I'll answer the first part. Another comma, a semicolon, second. Nothing. Uh, it's, I put the comma in parentheses, and it's just the word comma. And uh, so it is what it looks to be, although not ever overly complicated. But Blake, do you have any Lord of the Rings, a Jace commentary?
1: I don't. Um, I read the books back in like elementary school and I've never seen the movies uh, and not to age myself. But reading the books was a really long time ago. With that said, in any competitive or do or die situation, I'm picking Kyle Lowry. So I will pick Kyle Lowry to protect, protect it or get it to mount doom whatever whatever you got to do there with the ring it's been it's been a while man i'm I'm very rusty on my, on my lord does not of the rings
0: simply walk into mordor um do you have a, a sean bean comparison for for the raptors is there a sean bean uh a jace person
1: i don't know what that means i haven't seen the movies sean the books. bean
0: he's ned stark he's like he's he's a very famous actor. no
1: but like what is he in lord of the rings
0: Oh, okay, sorry. I guess I thought since you read the books, you would at least have some memory. Okay, Boromir, uh, everybody who's listening knows who Boromir is. Also, it's crazy to me, and this is not me judging, it's just very surprising that you haven't seen Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. What else is extremely popular that you haven't seen?
1: I haven't seen any of the Matrix movies or any of the Harry Potter movies. Um, yeah, any like fantasy epic series like that, those just don't do it for me.
0: And you just – you've never been persuaded to do it. You just completely avoid it. That's impressive to me because I mean, when things are big – go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's not like I'm like, oh, I'll never watch it. It's just you don't watch it for a long enough time. and like, what am I going to do now? Just watch five – like Lord of the Rings is what? Like 12 hours, 15 hours? Star Wars, like 200 hours at this point?
0: Yeah, I suppose. it It just seems like it's so woven into the culture at this point that how could – like, you'd be like if somebody said, oh, I haven't seen Star Wars. You'd be like, I guess that's one, although you see it everywhere. But not to see Harry Potter, um, famous, very, um, I guess, topical now with J.K. Rowling under fire, but Harry Potter, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings. That is yeah. like the – that's thats very – it's almost impressive at that point, right?
1: Yeah. Sha- Sean Bean – and again, this is going to age myself. Sean Bean for me is just always going to be 006. <laughs> okay uh, way before your time but goldeneye was the most popular n64 game of my time and he played 006 in the goldeneye movie so i watched the goldeneye movie a handful of times because i played a lot of goldeneye on n64 and that's what sean bean is to me
0: you come on the podcast strictly for 006 references and ob trice references and then you say sam you won't get this but but too bad
1: real name no gimmicks
0: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So the second question from Cohen Swinkles, a guy with a basketball hoop in his avatar. How much Raptors players hang out with players from other teams? And if the answer is a lot, could this be bad for Raptors team chemistry? They're such a good group together. Could this be negatively impacted by interacting with other teams? You probably know more than me about anything going on there. So I'll let you answer this one.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a ton, Um, you know, at least on the younger player, the younger side of the roster. The Raptors are a heavy video game team, so I could see them not having a ton of issues with, you know, safely quarantining and stuff like that. I also just don't think it's an issue. You know, like I know I know there are some people who want every player to have that kind of Michael Jordan, you know. Oh, and that's when it became personal to me, (laughs) like like Kyle Lowry losing at ping pong to Marcus Smart and he's like oh that that's when it became personal to me like I just don't think that that's realistic in the modern NBA and I think because so many of these guys connect over um, you know social things or video games or if you're Kyle Lowry you know you're a part of you're the team's NBPA rep and you've been heavily involved in these discussions or if you're Fred Van Bleet and you've been heavily involved in the discussions about how how players can use the advocacy side of of the relaunch you know I just don't think it's I don't think it's realistic for guys to be isolated from other teams. And I also don't think it's going to be like, I don't think it harms anything like, yeah, it's great if the Raptors have good chemistry and camaraderie. And I think they do. And I think they will continue to, um, but you know, if, if Kyle Lowry gets 18 holes in with Chris Paul on an off day, instead of getting those 18 holes in with Matt Thomas, like, I don't think, I don't think that's the end of the world. Um, I think that these guys, there are enough relationships across teams around the league that that kind of stuff, you know, when DeMar, when the Spurs come to Toronto, DeMar and Kyle get dinner. And and I don't think that makes Kyle play any less um, aggressively or less intensely the next day. So I don't, I don't think there's a huge effect there. Um, You know, who knows? This is a completely novel environment. So like maybe, maybe something like that happens. Like, Serge Ibaka gets angry that Marc Gasol ate with a, a different cooking big man or something like that. Like Marc Gasol <laughs> crushes some beers with Stephen Adams and Serge Ibaka gets jealous because they were supposed to have a red wine night. I don't know. But I don't think the uh, I don't think the likelihood of that stuff is too too high.
0: Yeah, it's I think the, the Michael Jordan thing is weird, right? Because it's that, well, Michael Jordan, I understand when people want to emulate aspects of his game. But then to think this madman type of look at, like, competition was what drove him. He says that's what drives him because it's intangible and nobody can ever recreate that. But the thing that actually made Michael Jordan the best was what he did on the court. And I don't know. You, you've obviously played sports against your friends. I've played sports against my friends my whole life. You don't stop trying. Like, you try just as hard when you're playing your friends, maybe even harder sometimes. So I've yeah, never I, understood I that critique. I
1: certainly talk more shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've... Playing against a leg, I I've gotten angrier, I've gotten more upset, I've gotten more competitive than playing against random schmuck number one. Like, I've I've never understood that uh, that part of it. But Cohen, that that isn't to disparage your comment. I I think your concerns are legitimate. You want the Raptors to do very well. But the next question from Jeff Berg at Jeff Berg forty two, so you can keep that in your brain for later, Blake. <clears throat> okay. How did the Raptors go from the number five D? To the number 2D after losing two of the best defensive wings in the league. P.S. Gasol was out 28 games, so he can't be part of your answer. Bossy Jeff, but I'll swing this one to you, Blake. I feel like you've got a good grip on what they're doing over there, and then if I see any holes in your logic, I'll I'll, I'll swoop in.
1: Yeah, I not to be an asshole, but the the primary answer is that the gaps between second and fifth are really small. Um, so, like, The gap between Milwaukee and Toronto, one, two, is 3.3 points per 100 possessions. And that's the same as the gap between the Raptors at number two and the Nets at number eight. So there's not, you know, other than Milwaukee, the scale of defensive quality um, drops off like much, much slower after that point. Uh, More tactically, and again, to make a plug here, uh, I have the defensive counterpart to that offensive breakdown that I had earlier this week going up on Wednesday at the Athletic. Um, I did kind of a deep dive on their defense, refreshing some of the things we talked about earlier in the year, particularly the fact that the Raptors give up 32% more corner threes than any other team in the history of basketball, uh, which if you know your analytics straw men or your Maury ball or your Kirk Goldsbury heat maps or whatever, you know that that is counter to, you know, defensive efficiency in general, uh, but the Raptors have got away with that. And the way for the ones who get going when the going gets tough, and the ones who know we're tougher together. For the Pathfinders breaking new ground, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24 7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you, so you can always depend on us. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.